Uh, good morning, everybody. Nice to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name is Peter Lau. So, um, as Julian said, uh, we're currently serving with OMF, my wife and I. Uh, you might know my mum. She's been here for a couple of decades. Um, so, if you don't know who I am, just refer to her, and I'm sure she can let you know. Um, so, let's uh, read. Let's uh, open our Bibles. Keep our Bibles open as we look at Esther one and two, and let's pray before we begin. Let's pray. Dear God, open our minds and hearts our ears and our eyes, to your word this morning. Amen. The Invisible King. I want you to guess this story. There was once a vain emperor who cared about nothing except for wearing and displaying clothes. He hires two weavers who promise him the best suit of clothes. This suit is made from a fabric invisible to anyone who is unfit for his position, or is hopelessly stupid. The emperor gets dressed in his new suit and marches in procession before his subjects. Everyone in the streets and the windows say, Oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. But a little child says, But he hasn't got anything on. The whole town cries out at last, but he hasn't got anything on. The emperor shivered, for he suspected that they were right. But he thought, this procession has got to go on. And so he walked more proudly than ever. Did you guess the story? Yes? Ah, perfect, yes. This is Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes. Yes. In this story, Anderson uses humor to ridicule the king. He invites us to laugh at the king's stupidity together. In the book of Esther, we meet another king. Let's see what King Xerxes is like and whether we should laugh at him. We'll look at this story in four scenes. So scene one, the king feasts. Now, the first thing we notice about the king is that he is powerful. He's the king of a vast empire, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, his is an enormous empire. On today's map, it would stretch all the way from India to Sudan, as you can see here, the green on this map. It was the world empire of the day. And so this is where it fits geographically, our story, and this is where our story fits historically. Right at the end of the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ, so where it's got the exile right in the middle, you can see there. So King Xerxes is not only powerful, he's also rich. And he likes to display his wealth. So in the third year of his reign, he gives a feast for all his nobles, officials, military leaders, and princes. Now, for how long did this feast last? How long? Six months? Yes, six months. And next, he throws a feast for the staff in his citadel. 
Verse 4 says, He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He's wealthy and he wants to show it off. Now, how rich is the king? As I read these verses, see if you can picture the scene in your head. I'm going to read verse verse 6. Picture this in your head. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets, each one different from the other. And royal wine was abundant. Verse 8. The king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Make no mistake, this is an extravagant, over-the-top banquet. You think wedding banquets in Australia are grand? They're like a morning tea compared to King Xerxes' banquets. But why is King Xerxes throwing these banquets? Well, he was probably preparing to launch an invasion into Greece. These feasts are his way of gaining support for his upcoming attack. Well, you know what they say. There's no such thing as a free banquet. I give you a banquet. You give me your loyalty. Now, just imagine that you're there. How does the king get you on his side? He shows you his riches. He fills you with food and wine. And as you look at this display of power and wealth, you are thinking, wow, I wish I could have some of this. In your subconscious, you want to be like the king. And you can. If only you take on his morals. If only you conform to his culture's way of life. If only you follow the ways of his world empire. Does this sound familiar? Today, there is no exact equivalent of the Persian Empire. But do we feel tempted to become like the rich or the famous or the powerful in our world? Just this week, we had lunch at a friend's place, and his neighbour behind where he lives is Guy Sebastian. Sebastian has a mansion, he has a tennis court, he's within walking distance to the beach. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to live like this? Or perhaps we're swayed by the advertising of the powerful global corporations like Apple or Tesla. If so, we need to remember what John says, as we can see in the next slide. Do not love the world or anything in the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The companies we work for, the media, Hollywood, K-pop stars. Their values can look and sound extravagant, attractive, enticing. But when we stop and reflect, we will find that their values are hollow and temporary, maybe even laughable. So far with King Xerxes, nothing much to laugh at. The king still has his clothes on. Perhaps we'll find something to ridicule in the next scene of our story. 
Scene two, the queen refuses. Like the king, Queen Vashti throws a banquet for the women in the royal palace. By the seventh day of the second feast, King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, verse 10. Now that's a nice way of saying that he's drunk. Now that his judgment is impaired, we expect something bad is about to happen. Something he might end up being mocked for, and it does. He thinks it's a good idea to parade his wife, the queen, in front of a crowd of drunken men. He's shown off his objects of power and wealth to all the people. And now he wants to show off another object, his wife. We are told that she is stunning. He commands his seven eunuchs to, verse 11, bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. In today's language, King Xerxes wants to show off his trophy wife. These days, if a king asks his queen to come, she can probably refuse or at least negotiate with him. But in those days, if a king commands it, a queen should come. But she says, no. Now, we don't know why she refuses. Verse 11 says that she will come wearing her royal crown, but it doesn't mention anything else. So some people speculate that the king commanded her to come only wearing her crown and nothing else. Now, I don't think this is likely, and since we're not told why she refused, it is not important. But if you were the king's wife, would you leave your own banquet to come to your husband's drunken party to be ogled at? Now, just look at the king's response in verse 12. At this, the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, I can just picture his face going beetroot red, and I can see the smoke coming out of his ears. Now, what do we have here? What do we have? It's irony. The most powerful man in the world does not have power in his own household. The queen won't obey the mighty king. Are you starting to find some humour in this story? Perhaps you're starting to snicker on the inside? Well, let's go on. Surely the powerful king will know how to fix this little problem within his own household. Well, the king consults with his wise men and princes in verses 13 to 14. And so we wonder... Doesn't the king know how to deal with his own wife? His advisors respond in verse 17. Next slide. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So his advisors are worried that the queen's refusal will lead to a widespread rebellion in all the households in the Persian Empire. So they make a suggestion to counter this dangerous threat to authority, verses 19 to 20. Queen Vashti is to be barred from entering the presence of the king. Ironically, what she refused to do is now a written decree. 
She's to be removed as queen, and her position is going to be given to another. The king issues an official royal edict in verse 22. All women will respect their husbands, and every man should be ruler over his own household. Husbands, what do you think about this edict? As a husband, I I like this edict. I'm picturing every husband strutting around like little kings of their own little castles. But of course, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You can't legislate for one person to respect another. You can't demand that someone respect you. Sure, respect is to be encouraged in marriage, but we know from the Apostle Paul that this is only half of the equation. Wives should respect their husbands, yes, but husbands also need to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the Apostle Peter says, next slide, Husbands, be considerate and treat your wives with respect. Now, I wonder if King Xerxes loved and respected his wife Vashti like this. And so, the king's decree is dispatched to every corner of his kingdom. Most people wouldn't have heard of kings, the king's red-faced moment. But ironically, now they all will. So now, does the emperor have no clothes? Scene three. Esther chosen as new queen. Now, as the curtain goes up on the next scene, we find that the king has sobered up. He remembers he's banished his queen and he needs to find a replacement Now, does he come up with a plan by himself? Next slide. Then the king's personal attendants proposed that the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The powerful king's attendants propose a Persia's top model competition. Contestants will be drawn from every one of the king's 127 provinces. We are reminded of the reach of this powerful king, but also how he treats people. Women are viewed as objects of his desire and pleasure. Then, unexpectedly, in verse 5, we are introduced to a Jew, Mordecai. And we might be thinking, what's he got to do with anything? As we read on, we find he has a cousin he has brought up as his own daughter. She's described in verse 7. Next slide. The king was seeking a young, unmarried beautiful woman. Esther fits the bill and more. She also has a lovely figure. We now know that it's got nothing to do with Mordecai, but everything to do with Esther. Our expectations for her go through the roof 
And then in verses 8 to 9, we see that she plays the game very well, pleasing the eunuch in charge of the harem and winning his favor. By the end of verse 11, she's already in pole position. We can't wait to see if she'll make it as Persia's top model. But this is no weekend competition. Before she even goes to the king, the beauty treatments last for one year. Verse 12, she marinates in six, for six months with oil of myrrh. Then she marinates for six months with spices and ointments. Then take a look at what happens to her and the contestants in verse 13. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashkars, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Well, it's not really a beauty pageant, is it? They have one night to satisfy the king in his bed. In the morning, they return to be part of his harem as a concubine. Imagine, you're now in the king's service. You don't get to go home again. Unless the king is pleased with you, he wouldn't call you back for another night. As we said before, the women here are treated as objects for the king's pleasure. They're used for his entertainment, and they're disposed of until he fancies them again, if he ever does. But don't think that the king's policy is sexist. The boys don't get away scot-free. He has the power to conscript them into his service as well. After some modification, they become eunuchs in his service, like Higai and Shashgaz. As eunuchs, they pose less threat to the king and won't molest his harem of women. Would you rather be a boy or a girl in the Persian Empire? We've reached the exciting point of the story when it is Esther's turn to go to the king, verse 15. Verse 16 tells us it's the seventh year of King Xerxes' reign, four years after Queen Vashti has been deposed. In those four years, King Xerxes probably waged an unsuccessful war against Greece. But now he's back. And what is his verdict? Verse 17. Esther wins. The king throws another feast to celebrate. But as we watch and cheer for Esther's rise from nobody to queen, Cinderella-like, we might feel a sense of discomfort. As we read verse 10, we wonder how much she might have compromised to get ahead in this worldly kingdom. She can't reveal her nationality. She can't reveal her family background. So we wonder, how many of the Jewish laws did she not keep? Did she keep the food laws? Did she rest on the Sabbath? Belonging to God's people must have been dangerous or disadvantageous. But did she compromise too much to keep her identity hidden? After all, she goes along with the contest, and she does so well 
that she ends up marrying a foreign pagan king. Then we look at Vashti, who refused to go along with the empire. We wonder if Esther could or should have refused to play the game. Now, it's hard for us to judge, because who knows what we would have done in her situation. What we do know is that Esther's life is true to life. Her dilemma is similar to what we experience in our lives. We face the hard task of being in this world, but not of the world. We face the challenge of not hiding or compromising our faith to avoid problems. Will we hide our faith to gain a promotion at work? Will we compromise our faith to be accepted by our friends? As Vashti shows us, we can say no to the kingdom of this world, but it may cost us our position. But sometimes saying no is essential because, as James tells us in the next slide, you adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, before we move on to the last scene, let's do a quick stock take. How many feasts have we had? How many feasts? Three, yes. Three in chapter one and then one here. In chapter 2, so 4. How many queens have we had so far? Two, Vashti and Esther. How many kings have we had? One, King Xerxes. But perhaps we'll find another one soon. Scene 4, Mordecai foils a plot. In the last scene, we find more unrest in King Xerxes' kingdom. On the surface, there may be banquets and drinking, silver and sparkling jewels. But there is a dark underbelly. Not everybody living under the king is happy. Next slide, we see two eunuchs have murder on their minds. Our attention, though, is drawn to Mordecai. He's sitting at the king's gate. Next slide. The Persian gates had rooms where people made legal and administrative decisions. At the gate, Mordecai foils the conspiracy. He saves the king's life. The eunuchs are impaled on a pole as punishment. It's all recorded in the official Persian historical records. But the king forgets what Mordecai has done. But there is another king who won't forget. And as we'll find out in the coming weeks, he will use this forgotten footnote of history for greater purposes. So, four feasts, two kings, one king, two queens, one king. I would suggest there are two kings, one visible, one invisible. And the invisible king wants us to laugh with him at the visible human kings of this world. Psalm 2, next slide. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God in heaven 
laughs at the empires of the world. He scoffs at their pretensions to the throne. On the outside, they look powerful, they look rich, they look enticing. But we know that the emperor has no clothes. Xerxes and all other world empires, corporations and the media, with their value systems, set themselves up against God and the values of his kingdom. With God, we can laugh at them, even though they entice us to join them. Because God has installed his king, one who, ironically, was willingly disrobed on the cross. This king willingly endured shame and humiliation. This king didn't abuse his power for his own pleasure. This king didn't treat people as objects. This king gave up his position of power to become weak for the benefit of those in his kingdom. God raised him as the king of the universe, and now he sits at God's right hand in heaven. So surely we can say no when we are tempted to compromise our faith because we serve such a king. Surely we can live with a bold faith knowing that the true king is on our side. And surely we can endure suffering under human rulers because we look forward to the most glorious of banquets when our King Jesus returns. Let's pray. Dear Sovereign Lord, you are the true King. Help us to serve and obey you without compromise. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.